Welcome to Chief Everything Officer, a podcast for entrepreneurs who do it all. We are sponsored by Juntobot, an impact-oriented venture school and studio focused on designing and scaling startup ecosystems for the future. Greetings. So today we are with Jonathan Akakian. Uh, a longtime investor in the startup community, having started an angel fund called Soundboard Angels and recently a venture fund called uh, Soundboard Venture Fund. I'm going to let him introduce himself in his own words. But uh, today we're just going to be walking through what he does and what he's what what really jazzes him from an investment standpoint when talking to startups and uh, how he provides unique value within the ecosystem. So, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Devin. Uh, Jonathan Hakakian, Soundboard Venture Fund, as, as Devin mentioned. We launched our first fund about 10 years ago with the specific intention of figuring out how to support early stage entrepreneurs that are kind of in the out of the way areas. When we launched, we were in the metro uh, NYC area and New York was definitely a secondary tech ecosystem back then. Um, about five years ago or so, it overtook Boston as the number two in the country and has solidly stayed there. So we've seen the transformation and, and been part of it throughout the, the journey of New York uh, over the past 10 plus years. And so what we're doing is we're really being a collective of investors that are acting as a fund uh, to collaborate and invest together into startups and early stage companies that, again, are not the traditional uh, startup that you would think about. So when you're looking at the the problem your your collection of investors is looking the 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 wedge opportunity they're looking to leverage what what does that look like what, what what is it what is that you're looking to leverage that you found in New York or in the places that you look for? So th there are two aspects to that. One is the hustle and the grit and and the perspective that the entrepreneur is bringing to the table which what, what we saw and what we continue to see in these ecosystems is that they know that because they're not based in one of the major startup tech hubs, namely Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, there isn't this constant spigot of venture capital available to them. They can't just keep going back for more and more funds. So when they start the company, they're, they're going at it with this concept of, I got to make it work. I got to get customers on board so I can pay the bills. Because their perspective is that ultimately the customers have to pay the bills, not the investors. Mm. And, and by nature of just being in these different ecosystems, it creates entrepreneurs that have this mindset. Mm. So that, that's on one side. On the other side is the opportunity itself. And we're going after more tech-enabled companies. And it's great, the research-driven companies that are really changing the world, we're, we're sitting just below that. And investing in companies that they're adding one layer of efficiency or, or ease of life to their business or, or people in general. So we're not looking for the name brand startups necessarily that you're going to hear about or read about in TechCrunch or the front page of Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. we're, we're sitting below that. I try to fly below the radar. And, and when we do that, we see that the entrepreneurs get great success. Um, our investors get great returns and, and we get to keep building more and more fun. When you like kind of locked into this wedge opportunity, 
what personally motivated you to do this? What, what what gets you up in the morning? What 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 gave you passion around solving for this type of wedge opportunity? To be honest, Devin, it was totally by accident. Um, my partner and I, Richard Maggot, have known each other since 2007, and then we started working together in 2010. Richard's background has been 20 plus years in leadership development and management consulting. And he's built a great professional practice around that. And when we came together, it was to figure out how to bring what Richard's been doing at the mature stage, mm-hmm. but still very entrepreneurial led, or those how to bring the, the support and advisory services he's been giving them down to the early stage level, which we saw had a need for it back 10, 11 years ago. Okay. And so we, we, we just started in the advisory consulting practice into startups. And what we realized, like, this is great. They love it. They need it. But that's not what they need, number one. Mm-hmm. Their number one pain point is financing. They need to get the funds together to get past concept. Yeah. And again, when we, when we started 10, 10 years ago, uh, we launched our first one in 2012 just to help set the, the framework. And when we launched our first fund, it, it really came on the heels of understanding that this is the need in the market. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneurs coming to us for both consulting and advisory work and because they, they, they knew that we started building a network of investors. Mm-hmm. And then investors were coming to us because we had built a pipeline of entrepreneurs. Cool. So it kind of was this just natural coalescence of, of things that just happened. Uh, we didn't set out there that, hey, this is our thesis. It, it just mm-hmm. it came together and we saw that there's, there's something here and over time, that's when we really saw like, okay, this is why it's working. This is what we're now seeing in the market is there are these entrepreneurs starting up. They need funding. They need financing. They're not going to be multi-billion dollar IPOs. Mm-hmm. Again, what we read about, but yeah. there's a great economy and a great opportunity for them to scale and grow. They, they need a little bit of capital and they need some uh, a support and a push and, and a an ear to just listen. It's mm-hmm. really fascinating. That's I love the fact that you all grew organically into this concept as opposed to coming in with a thesis and then just like throwing as much money at it as you could until you optimized the success. <laughs> <laughs> the funny story is that when I was 17 or 18, uh, my parents were, well, you know, my mother was actually taking me for a walk and she's like, all right, you know, start thinking about your career. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, but I know I want to work with a lot of new companies starting up. And she kind of like smacked me on the head. She's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, true story, I swear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, hey. but somehow it just came in. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, uh, there's that uh, there's an old 80s movie and they and this kid uh, say anything and this kid meets his girlfriend's family for the first time and they're like so what do you want to mm-hmm. do from a career perspective he's like I don't know I've been thinking about this I don't want to buy anything sold or processed I don't want to sell anything bought or processed and I don't want to process anything bought or sold so you know and my dad works for the military <laughs> I don't want to work for that institution so I've been thinking kickboxing, sport of the future. It's just like everybody's faces just drop and they're like, what? 
It was just like, I feel like I've been that kid in every single like meet the parents situation ever. Like they're like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I incubate stuff like chickens. Like, no, I. I... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough industry to explain to the explain. end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, my wife has a joke. He's like, I know my husband's really smart. I don't know what he does. And it's too late for me to ask, but. <laughs> Uh, so let me ask you a question uh, what with all the founders that you've worked with um and what have you found that your your founders want and need from you and you talked Empathy. a little bit about the uh, lending an ear and the and the funding but is there something unique that you've discovered that you're just like oh that's this is what they need you know the, uh, I mean, beyond capital, obviously, they, they need empathy mm -hmm. and they need a network. And with that comes, uh, I don't want to say structured support, yeah. but it's, it's guidance uh, that comes from uh, having been there and having felt the, mm -hmm. the pain of fundraising, having felt the pain of um, operating on, on, you know, and, and worrying about payroll next week. Mm. Or, you know, to me, it's, it's always funny, like having that, those first conversations with a business starting up and being like, you need insurance. What do we need insurance for? We, we're not doing anything yet. Well, you know, go talk to the insurance guys, go talk to your attorney. This is like yeah. the third thing you need. And like just having done all the, yeah, pardon? it seems like a wasted investment until somebody breaks their foot <laughs> going down the staircase. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's having this collaborative effort of 40 plus investors. Mm -hmm. that when we invest in a company, all 40 are on board um, mm -hmm. as advisors. And what we do is we match the company and the entrepreneur with whoever resonates with them most, who has the most experience, the biggest, the best network for that company. Yeah, yeah. And they're all operators. They, you know, all of our investors um, have been entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs working mm -hmm. within a larger corporate, but still very entrepreneurial. In their own right, so they've they've done that. They 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 felt that burden of having an entire company, entire labor force, or an entire department rest on their shoulders. Yeah. So when they speak, it's it's from that mentorship and guidance perspective, not the dictatorial. You have to do what I say. Yeah, I I learned this in business school, <clears throat> and of course you have to use this framework because Clayton Christensen wrote it. And you're like. But how do you execute on that? I don't know, but it's innovation. And you're like, great, thanks. <laughs> so where are these people? You talked about looking in, in, in unique places. Where are these people that you're finding? Uh, are they specific ecosystems or are they just kind of like all over the place? So where, where do you find them? We, we will, be, uh, we are open to looking all over specifically in the u.s because we're just not large enough mm. to support and sustain um investments internationally yeah yeah um but so so locally to us is u.s um we've developed really strong alliances and partnerships in communities like philadelphia pittsburgh chicago the state of ohio and what we've seen is the natural uh, growth uh, and the, the, the why there's natural growth for entrepreneurship in these areas and and, ma and mainly the cities is because there's um, a good university ecosystem 
Mm-hmm. There's a reasonable amount of wealth either immediately or in the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is if you've got university students, you've got the, the talent that's staying there because most of them end up being urban areas. And up until COVID, um, the, the, the millennials and the younger generation have been flocking more towards mm-hmm. the, the urban areas. So there's talent. Mm-hmm. Um, Innovation is going to happen and then they're going to want support. So once you have that, then the incubators, accelerators, entrepreneurial networks start up, and then the angel groups start. But in these areas that we've been focused on, that's kind of where it stops. Okay. And then there's this big pause, and then you've got private equity. <laughs> okay. So yeah. that's that's kind of what we've seen as the common thread in these in these areas that we've been focusing on. Um, thankfully, there's been a great rise over the past couple of years with uh, initiatives to, to go out to communities like Atlanta or DC. Um, even Pittsburgh has got some acclaim, uh, and more, more people are spending time there. But yeah. for the major VCs, the, the ones that we, we hear as brand names, it's it, with, with all due respect to them, it's not worth their time and money yeah. to focus on these communities because the deals aren't large enough. Yeah. They don't have, to, they have a very big appetite. Yeah. Correct. And normally, when a company is of that size, they're going to get moved out to the West Coast anyway. So um, we're trying to, to, again, go under the radar where, and invest in areas and things that others won't. Cool. So when you're looking at these teams in Pittsburgh or in uh, Ohio, what do they look like um, from a team or a company standpoint? Um, are they... Uh, are they founder operators? Are they builders? Are they a, a fully fleshed out team of different disciplines? Um, what, what do they look like? When, when you see a team, you're like, ooh, yes, I need to talk to them. What, what do they look like? So it's, it's usually more than one person by the time we, we start taking them seriously. It's no longer a solo founder. Mm-hmm. They've been able to bring on one or two or three Others now, mm. co-founders or key managers or key employees, it, it varies. But they've already identified one. They can't do things alone, and mm. so they need that level of, of high-level support, not um, you know just just task people, but the strategic. Mm. And two, they've been able to convince people to join them on their vision. Mm. Um, that is a strong positive sign, mm-hmm. uh, positive signal when when an entrepreneur can bring on other people to get paid less than market because of their vision yeah that's um, the rub right you know it yeah yeah and it's important because if you can't sell people who are in your industry mm-hmm. um or or who you if you can't get the the, the technicians or the employees or, or the co-founders to come on board it's going to be very difficult to get investors so so we yeah. look at um the cohesion of of the team the way and the way, the way they work together, and this comes through two different facets for us. We we one, it's multiple discussions. I never want to be known as the fastest check in the West. There are great investors that do that. I have a friend who he literally met a, a an entrepreneur at a, a party, a, a cocktail event on Sunday night. Wrote the 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 term sheet on the back of a napkin, and the money was wired on Monday. He's awesome. He's he's doing great. I love him to death. I that doesn't work for me. <laughs> you know, we, we take our time and our diligence. 
um, because I believe that diligence is a two-way street. So I want to get to know the entrepreneur through multiple instances and multiple cycles or weeks, and they should get to know us as well. Um, and, and, and so one way we assess the team is just through gut and instinct. The other is that through my partner's work over the past 20 years, uh, he's compiled a series of assessment tools that when, um, when you look at them in a silo, it gives how that person is and what their personality profile is, what their work profile is, who they are. Mm. But he's developed a way to analyze them layered on top of one another. And when you do that and, um, and you look at the whole team, we can have a really constructive conversation with the team and say, hey, you guys work really well in these areas, mm-hmm. but this is the blind spot. Or this, these are the challenges and hurdles and obstacles you're going to come up against. What's really impactful is the conversation itself. Yeah. Not to make sure they've checked all the boxes or they have everything correct. Like, no, that's impossible at the startup stage. Yeah, yeah. But it's whether they can internalize that conversation. Mm-hmm. Whether now they say, hey, that's good information, really interesting. We can't, we don't have the bandwidth to focus on it, focus on it right now, but I'm going to park that in my head. And you know what? In six months, I think that's a real thing. We, we're going to come back and we're going to want support mm-hmm. or, or to have a really good discussion about it. But if they sit there and they're like, no, absolutely not. That, that's bogus. I don't believe in the, like, yeah. what does that tell you about the entrepreneur? Yeah, 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 yeah. So do so you that, look at it from, a, from a they are yeah. not coaching perspective or that they are not self-aware enough to understand where they, uh, where they are weak and strong and what, they, what gaps in the organization they need to fill? I really like how you phrase that question. It's, it's not just about coachability because I think coachability has been uh, thrown around a lot in the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. world over the past few years. And uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of uh, debates and, and postings about coachability versus just get it done and, and yeah. you know, head down, just, just do your work and, and you'll be great. And it's, it's that self-awareness that you're really talking about, mm-hmm. where they can be introspective, they can understand that their perspective is not always the only one or is not mm-hmm. always correct. And if they have the ability to take in multiple inputs, multiple perspectives, mm-hmm. analyze it and make the best decision for the company, irregardless mm-hmm. of whose idea it is. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I'm, I'm the first to tell entrepreneurs, look, you can't, if you're asking for advice, I'm one data point. Yeah. You have to talk to others. Like I, I don't always know best. And most of the time I'm probably wrong because I don't know your client base. I'm not your, mm-hmm. your target. Um, you know, but, but the fact if they just have that engagement and, and, you know, the, the self-awareness mm-hmm. to, to discuss that's, that's tremendous. Now coachability, it is important. I just think the term is thrown around a lot mm-hmm. because it, it's, it, it's more about, um, thinking through and then reacting to the market needs and to your employees and to other things. It's like, can you be flexible? Yeah, I, I I love that. I 100% agree. I, I I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say they're not really coachable, and what they meant was they didn't listen to me. And I'm like, well, dude, like, I mean, you have a very strong point of view on something. It might not be the correct one. I always tell all of my startups, 
look, I'm absolutely right. But so are the next five other people who are going to completely contradict me. So, you know, in their mind, they're not looking to like lie to you. They strongly believe what they believe. Your job is to figure right. out what piece of each is the right one for your business. And it's exactly, like, I, I, I just love that. That's really, exactly. Really, yeah, cool. I'm always looking for those questions or those data points that give more than one piece of information, you know, like, ah, by asking them, you know, you can see how well they can, they can parse information, how strategically they think about their business and as well, how able they are to take that constructive criticism and can they take input from you in a way that's valuable for both of you. So cool. Uh, yes. And it's because in the early stage, that's most of the company is in the analysis and the thought process. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's not a lot on that, that they can back up. Maybe they have a beta, maybe they have some pilots, but all of that is based on the, the intuition um, and the belief in the, the entrepreneur and what he or she can do, mm. which in, in, in our world ends up being, how do they think? Mm -hmm. How do they react? I like that. I, you know, there's a term my old uh, business partner <laughs> used to use called, I'm, I'm sure he still uses it, but uh, called value blindness which I was, I just loved it because it's not that you, uh, when you're looking at somebody uh, or looking at a startup, you can't see, it's like being colorblind. You can't see the value there. And those type of questions and that type of, of, of probing into an organization really allows you to see beyond mm -hmm. what you traditional uh, stereotype of what a success might look like because you can't get out of they are thinking strategically about their business, you know? Um, but uh, but that, that does lead me to, I mean, maybe not a pivot, but a, a slight, you know, one of the things I've found is that there's a strict return on investment. Um, there's an impact conversation to be had, but there's a strict return on investment for diverse teams. I mean, I think McKinsey yeah. did a study in 2015 about the top 15% of uh, uh, uh performers teams had female executives and the top 35% had uh, diverse teams overall. And I'd love to get a sense of what the diversity on your founding teams looks like. Do you actively seek that out? Or is that something through the nature of where you're looking or how you're looking that you come across? Um, and how do you, in, so I, I have some more questions on that, but I'll, I'll let you answer that question first. So. So it is true. And I do believe the statistics hmm. that uh, the VC and angel ecosystem as a whole needs to do more work here. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to do that. One of the things that we've seen is that our process by nature either is more ready to invest in diverse teams or finds entrepreneurs that are they resonate better with diversity mm -hmm. and and the reason is because the way we do our diligence is that we bring five of our investors so if we have a team if we have 40 investors we're bringing five of them mm -hmm. onto the diligence team they don't all have backgrounds in that industry mm -hmm. or have a connection with the network or the client base so they're coming in with different perspectives Mm. And one of them is always the contrarian, the challenger on the team. 
So by nature of the construct of how we're going into diligence, it's going in with this, let's have really good conversation and deep dive discussions about the business and the industry and strategy overall. And if the entrepreneur resonates with that, then we, then, then it, it, it's a yes for us. Yeah. Okay. And by, by the fact that we go, that they're open to that and they resonate with that, they are more open to diversity because they're open to diverse perspectives. And that's really what we've seen is the driver for diversity in there is that it allows more perspectives to come into the conversation, which builds a better company. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> so question for you then, uh, you know, we all have our own lens that we see the world through. Through. And um, how do do you guys have an active process for challenging? I like the whole concept of the contrarian in the mm -hmm. room. You know, whose job it is to say this is an awful idea. Let me sell you on why, and then you can through that conversation you can discover whether or not it is actually not a good idea or not. But when you're looking at it from a perspective of value blindness, do you have any process in there for? Um, for challenging your own value blindness or uh, looking at it from a different perspective of maybe we're not seeing this. I mean, one example I always have is um, when I started working with female entrepreneurs and I started seeing investors interact with them, they would ask challenge questions or failure questions. What's your plan B? What are you mm -hmm. gonna do if this fails? Um, how are you gonna hire all these people uh, versus, you know, like, what's your next step? Like how, you know, when you, when you scale this, where do you see yourself scaling? They, they would always ask failure questions. And I was just, and I couldn't, I never got down to the bottom of why that happened, but it always happened. And it was, it mm -hmm. was enough to show a pattern that I was like, huh, but do you have any process for challenging your own value blindness? Uh, knowing that we all have it, you know, um, but do you guys do anything like that? Or is it in the nature of that five team, that tiger team of five people in the vetting? It, it's by nature of the fact that it's multiple perspectives mm -hmm. and that we're always refining our process. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't tell you how many different versions of our due diligence outline we have made over the past 10 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, know, you know how after a document you write final, final yeah. final final like yeah, yeah, yeah we have that like it, really. it's ridiculous final how many date, times because it's always going to change yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> v23 like it's it's yeah. crazy how many times we just keep updating it yeah. um and we tweak it we modify it because as ever with every diligence we learn new things about ourselves and about the entrepreneurs that we're trying to go after so we're, we're always in um a refinement mode of our process but it really is because we have a, a group of five. Um, and yeah, yes, it's five LPs, but some of them are regular members of our diligence team. Like they, they know the process. And then there's some people who are, are, are only do it once a year, or once every two years. So they're, they're, they're not as adept and attuned to things. So that, that combination mm -hmm. creates different perspectives and different ways of looking at things and different questions to be asked. And, yeah, you know, I'm sure we, we do have those. Uh, we are blind to certain things that we need to get better at. But mm -hmm. in aggregate, because it's not one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. it, yeah. it kind of just naturally 
dissipates. It, it's not as big of a concern because it's not one perspective only. We're five. Have you have you done anything to kind of um, to open up the pipeline, so to speak, of where your deal flow comes from, like in terms of programs that you reach out to, or geographic locations, or uh, quota systems, or whatever you might have to to get deals in the door that you might not normally see because you wouldn't be hunting, you wouldn't be fishing in that pool. The the best way is is we built alliances with other organizations, whether it's incubators, accelerators, universities, um, investors, entrepreneurs, like th those are the best ways for us to build the, our, our mm -hmm. pipeline. Um, mm -hmm. Because if we have good engagement with them, they know what fits our profile. Um, that being said, more often than not, I'm willing to have a 30 minute call with, I won't say everybody, but a lot of the entrepreneurs that come in because I'd rather meet them when they're too early and then and then have them really get into our pipeline in six months or a year from yeah. now. And we were actually doing the analysis just this morning that we're seeing entrepreneurs that have pitched companies three, four years ago, come back around with their second company now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we, we leave the door open and our, and our process is one that if we meet a company, we speak with an entrepreneur, we provide the, the sincere feedback and, Sometimes it's harsh, but it's always meant to be constructive back to the entrepreneur so they know exactly why. Mm -hmm. And what, that, what that's done is that the communities that were involved in the, the referral sources appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because now they know we're not just taking calls and it's just being, you know, falling on dead ears or in, intros are just, are just going into the email. We're actually doing the work and, and, and putting in the effort to, to follow up and to see it through. Right. to make sure that the companies, the entrepreneurs are doing better, that they know where our perspective is. Again, I'm not always right. My, my advice shouldn't always be taken, but at least I've provided it and closed the loop. One of the questions I want to, want to ask around that is, is there an example where like you were on the fence or it, it, somebody turned out to be a home run that you were, that you might not have looked at, or you were like, oh, thank God we agreed to take, thank God I took that $30, that 30 minute meeting. You know, thank God I looked here or there. Is there a home run that, that you can point to, that you can think about that you you might have passed on if you hadn't been looking in the right place or, or opening your mind up to looking for uh, at different founder types? 100%. Um, I, there's a bit of serendipity in a lot of the deals that come in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's right place, right time for me and to an extent for the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, about seven or eight years ago, there was an event that I happened to be at because you remember back pre-COVID, there were probably a hundred events a week. Yeah. Um, and, and so happened to go to one. One of my investors went to one. There was an entrepreneur presenting. Um, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, this is cool, but not for us. But the, uh, our investor came up to me and he said, look, you talk to this company. Mm -hmm. Just you know, get, get, get them to send us their materials. Let's, let, let's have a conversation. So I went up to the entrepreneur. It ended up that we shared a subway ride home because we were both going the same direction. We talked. I was like, this is a good guy. Mm -hmm. We ended up investing and it's been, it's been a very solid company for us cool. just because we, you know, we saw him, somebody else came to me. One of our investors came to me and said, Hey, get, get this in. And then, you know, serendipity, we, we had a 20, 30 minute conversation on the subway. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's definitely job, actually. 
I, I completely flubbed the interview. And then the interviewee had to go to a meeting downtown. We ended up riding the subway together and she re-interviewed me in a less stressful environment. And I ended up getting the job. It, it, it happens. I mean, that's, that's yeah. why it's so important for entrepreneurs to just put in the work and the time to just be there and yeah. show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you're, when you're looking at the, you know, the kind of the value proposition besides capital you bring to the team, you talked about this advising that you provide and, you know, can you flesh that out a little bit? Tell me a little bit more about this whole concept of the, the LPs being advisors and matching people up. And what, what do you do there? Like if I, if I was a startup founder that you were like, we want to invest in them and you try explain to me what the value I would get out of, out of uh, working with you guys. One is flexibility. Mm-hmm. I never want to be the heavy handed investor that says you took our money. You have to do this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. I don't need another business to run. <laughs> We've got enough going on on our side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what we have is we have a, a committed group of investors, again, all or most of whom have been operators mm-hmm. um, and entrepreneurs in their own right. So they know the, the, the journey and they want to get hands in where it makes sense. Okay. So at the end of our diligence process, I go to the entrepreneur and I say, hey, we're about to make an investment. Who from Soundboard side makes sense to be the board member, the advisor, the observer, the liaison for your, you and your company, because it's got to be both. I'd say 70% of the time, it's a natural fit where I even know the answer before I ask it, mm-hmm. where they, they're going to say, I want A, B, or C person because the network, the experience, the way they, they talk to me, they just get it. Mm-hmm. And it's natural. So I say, great. You know, they're, they're going to be your soundboard match for the next 18 to 24 months or until X, Y, and Z milestones are hit. Mm. Because to me, I, I want to take them to whatever that goal is, whether it's a series A or series B or profitability. Like there has to be a term for us to roll off because it's not fair to the company for us to be indefinitely mm-hmm. that, that fill that role in that same capacity. Mm-hmm. So we, and I, I want to leave that open to the entrepreneur that, Hey, maybe in a year or two, it's time for us to step aside and somebody else to come in or we downgrade the role. Maybe it starts as a board role and then we become an observer, but we never want to be a truly passive investor um, where we just hear from the entrepreneur in annual reports. So in the few instances where there hasn't been a natural connection where there hasn't been somebody that's got that industry or network or client perspective to support the company and just have those strategic conversations um, from, from the business side of things. Um, then I just say, Hey, we, we just want to have a one hour call every four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And at the early stage, entrepreneurs are pretty open to that because they see that there's value in just talking through things. Yeah. And that's, that's what we want at minimum, but really, having an advisory role or observer, uh, if not a board seat for a year to two years is really the target so that we can have an ear into the business support and be able to, to make recommendations and pull our, uh, the rest of our network in. Because what we've seen most is that the, the entrepreneur will have some requests or questions or want insight that we can leverage either the whoever's sitting on their board or the mm-hmm. other 39 investors. 
and their networks can come in and support. We can make intros to clients, to vendors, um, help them with loans or, or other things. Like there's, there's tremendous value in just communication. Cool. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, there comes yeah. a point in any sales cycle where um, I have bought your product and I'm like, this is pretty cool. I, I enjoyed the onboarding process. I, I'm getting value out of this. And then something happens and you're like, oh my Lord, this is amazing. I'm so glad I bought this or I'm so glad I signed up for this. Do you see a point in your journey where they just are like, I, like, I am so glad we invest, you guys invested in us. We, we agreed to go with you guys where they get like that. I mean, obviously they're going to get value throughout the entire process, but is there a certain point either anecdotally that you've heard from them or that you've seen through pattern recognition across all these different investments where they just like, oh, that's exactly what the real value that I'm getting. It's different with each company, mm-hmm. but yes, I've, I've seen that glow in their eyes. Like that spark that just comes like, Oh my God, this is why I have investors, <laughs> not just for money. Um, because it depends on the company and the needs of the company. Mm -hmm. So, so there are times when, you know, there was a company uh, and there is a company in our portfolio. Um, and one of our investors went, you know, all in, he was so excited. And for an interim period of about six months or to a year, he became their interim marketing support, branding and marketing. Mm -hmm. And it, it was natural. It wasn't anything that we pushed, but it just, it was like, he was on the phone with them every week for a couple hours, just talking about marketing and branding and, and things like that. Um, so that, that's when the entrepreneur turned to me and was like, this was awesome. Yeah. Like, can I have him more hours? I said, talk to him if you want him more, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, that's a, that becomes a one-on-one thing. Like, I'm happy that we're, we, we've got such insights here with you. Um, but it, it just happens naturally. Um, and then in other instances, it's just been when, when the entrepreneur's just emailed out or called me and said, I'm looking for this referral. Or I'm looking for an intro here. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody can help me. And then there have been times within like 24 hours, yeah. one of the LPs has been able to make that intro. You've, you've made those calls to me. And I've been like, I, I, I don't know anybody. <laughs> You're like, thanks, yeah. Devin. Thanks very much. Click. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's yeah. what we're here. We're here yeah, to yeah, be yeah. an extension yeah. of the network. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you a question about this. Like, I mean, from a differentiation standpoint, you know, there's there's consulting companies, there's services agencies, there's incubators and accelerators, and then there's uh, hands-off investors. Where on this spectrum do you all see yourself? Because you started with a with the DNA of an advisory company and almost a consulting mm-hmm. company. And but you don't really seem like you have a fully structured program like an incubator would have. Where do you sit in this? And where do you guys see yourself sitting in this universe? The, the reason why we don't have a fully structured program, uh, we originally thought we should create one. Mm-hmm. But the more we got onto the investing side, the more we created um, a, a wall between the consulting side and the fund, because I never wanted to give off the perception that we were investing in companies to pay for our services. Mm. You know, I didn't want that perception. It just wasn't something that, that, that I wanted out there. So we created this, this strict wall between where we didn't share clients. We didn't do things. Mm-hmm. Um, the consulting side would work with our companies, but for free as just support on an as needed or as requested basis. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the perspective that we've been going in. We've got great leverage and support from that advisory world and the consulting world that we can bring in. Um, but where it's warranted as opposed to it being required each time. The only time that it's really um, important for us is during the diligence process. And that's what I, when I was talking about having those assessments on the leadership styles and the, the work personality profiles and being able to analyze those for the whole team. That's that sort of, that's core to us. We're, we're not going to, you know, that, that's required across all of our portfolio companies that we need to do that. Uh, those assessments, um, and, and we need to have that conversation and analyze it together with the entrepreneur because that's central to who we are and what we invest in. But beyond that, it's really like we'll make recommendations to the company. We'll be that whatever they, wherever we can fit within that realm and that world. If they need a business coach, we can recommend if, if you know, it's not right for us to fill in as that because we're also investors. We'll be flexible, and that's part of why I think we've been successful is because we've got that, that, that mindset of the entrepreneur has to make the right decision for his or her company. I can't be dictating that for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. I like that you're, you're kind of like your success metrics are tied to the success of the business, not necessarily to employment of any coaching staff. You know, that it's right. And there's not necessarily a rigid step-by-step curriculum. It's more of a personalized curriculum as per the needs of each individual startup. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, but not well, a lot of our companies, a lot of our companies have gone through that curriculum with other accelerators or incubators. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to replicate that. We want to augment it. Yeah. So if they still need business and strategy support, of course we have, you know, we, between Richard and myself alone, we've got, we were able to do that talk business strategy, startup strategy, execution, plus the 40, the 40 people that, that are LP. So we, we do have a lot of expertise and experience across that we can pull in, but it's got to be a conversation with the entrepreneurs to see what they want. I'm not going to be, I don't want to preach to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. Or I don't want to teach somebody who doesn't want to learn. And yep. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, no, it makes complete sense. It's like, like I've, I've been in that you know, you give the right advice to the startup and they're like, no, you're like, no, what? And then they come back six months later, like, yeah, so I didn't follow your advice and it was a disaster. Like you said, it'd be, so what do I do now? I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I have to rethink this problem because before you were in a good situation, now you've spent $20,000 getting Facebook likes from Malaysia. So great. Thanks. Good on you. Uh, you could have spent that on advertising. Uh, but anyway, but the, but that, but I, I like that point that, you know, that you're, you're coming in kind of like a, a tiger team of like experts on the specific problem they're having and right. tied to y'all's metrics of return on the fund and return on the investment. Right. So speaking of return on investment, uh, what kind of stuff do you guys write and, uh, at what point in the founder's journey? What can a startup expect from you from a check size? Is there a range? So the easy answer is that with this new fund, we're putting about $250,000 into each company as an initial check. Mm-hmm. And we're reserving some for follow-on. Um, approximate, not set in stone. Yeah. Um, so for anybody who does reach out, could vary. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what stage of company uh, there, there are two ways for me to answer that question. The first is by numbers. We're, we're trying to focus on valuations 
of five to 10 million pre-money valuations. Mm. That's been our sweet spot. We know that area well. We know that investment thesis really well. Um, it's the seed, post-seed, pre-A, small A, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in that realm. Okay. From an execution standpoint, what we see and, and the metrics we want to see is it's, it's post-concept. We're, we're not there to invest in back-of-the-napkin ideas. Yeah. I have no problem meeting with entrepreneurs who are doing that, but with the understanding that we'll want to see you for investment purposes six months to a year to 18 months down the line. Yeah. When you've when you're when you're able to stand up and demonstrate why you're the thought leader, why your idea is the winning idea in this in this industry, um, and and demonstrate some execution points. And and I leave it vague because it depends on the industry and it depends on the company what that is. For some, it may be a fully fledged beta that's in customers' hands that's being used. Mm -hmm. Other areas might be an LOI. Um, so it, it really depends uh, what we would consider to be validation um, and an understanding of the market. But we, we want to be able to see that the, um, <clears throat> the entrepreneur can stand up um, and, and courageously say that they're a thought leader yeah. and back it up as to why they have the winning solution or why their first attempt failed. And now they know their client base better. Yeah, uh, I've, I've done a lot of that. Failing spectacularly and then learning really well. And people are like, you really know this client? It's like, yeah, because I failed awfully at it like four times. Yeah. So I better know. <laughs> I'm still in this industry. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So question, like, so you talked about the 250 check size. Are you guys usually first in? Are you part of other bundled checks? Or do you like to be the only investor? Where are you sitting in that spectrum of, of, uh, of investment? I, I never want to be the only investor in. I want to know that there are good people around the table with us. Mm -hmm. um, so usually, you know, that, that seed round is usually one to $2 million. Mm -hmm. We're a portion of that. Mm -hmm. We, we could be a lead, but lead is usually a thankless job. Mm -hmm. So I'll do it when, when it makes sense again for the entrepreneur and for us, mm -hmm. but I don't have the, the need or the ego to have to be the lead every single time. Yeah. Cool. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, we that. are often the the first institutional check or one of the first institutional checks in. That that is what I have found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that getting that first and that first that lead investor is so so hard. <laughs> like like can somebody you all agree to invest? Can somebody just take on the mantle of lead investor? Like, please, mm, I need it. Yeah. Uh, so all right. So um, we've also played the co-lead role a lot where we're the ones negotiating the terms, but somebody else may be a larger check or may have the industry or maybe more local to, to that uh, company. Cool. So we, we, again, we're, we're flexible because we've got a lot of years in the industry to, to play um, that co-lead role when, when it makes sense for the company. Got it. Got it. That's, I like that. that the, that's something that I'm doing in my business is, is, coming in and partnering where it makes sense. There's no, there's no reason yeah. to like from an ego perspective say, I know everything. There's people on the ground who know just more than I do, you know? Uh, so I, I, I really, I like that. The, uh, and, that and that's really the thesis that we, that we have with, which is why I bring the LPs in is because by no means am I the smartest person in the room. Like these are phenomenal operators and business people and leaders, people who have sold their businesses or who are 
leading their industries. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why wouldn't I bring them into due diligence and into supporting the companies? It would it, it would behoove the company to want me to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was explaining that to what somebody I I just hired. I was she was like, well, what is my you know what does my first six months look like? And I said, well, you're going to find five people who are at definitely smarter than you and I, and I should point out that you are yeah. smarter than me but that having been said go find five people who are smarter than you and hire them and convince them to come work for us for no money <laughs> and she was like she's like that sounds like really hard I was like yep that's what you're going to be teaching other people to do so to be able to do it so but uh, yeah no that uh, being the dumbest per- being the smartest person in the room is the scariest room to be in like I always want to be the dumbest person I agree awesome so um uh, so when when you know we'd had a conversation years ago about how funds are structured and how that governs how you look at a uh at a investor so want to dig a little bit into uh when do you normally look what how does this investment structure usually when are you looking for a return on your investment where do you guys normally get your you, you talked about from operators but what are they what are they expecting like this latest fund i don't know if it's not public obviously we can't talk about it but it, anything publicly you can talk about so i just want to deconstruct the question make sure i answer what you need sure. um uh so th- there are a couple things there one is the concept of fund size and mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. and what and how that impacts the company mm-hmm. startup yep and the other is uh, to make and the extension of that really is to make sure that there's a fit between the investor returns, the LP returns, the fund returns, and what the entrepreneur wants to do. Exactly. Yeah. But that's the overall question, or the many questions baked in there. No, that that's that's exactly what I'm looking for. <clears throat> from an inve- from a startup perspective. I don't think this is something that most startup founders understand. Is this whole concept of you might be saying absolutely not, sir. And it's not because they're a bad company, not because you don't like, but the, but when that return is going to come in, it's not going to kick in the right way that needs to for this fund. Right. And understanding that just can save everybody a whole lot of grief. On the flip side, they might not even look at you. Uh, and then they realize, oh, wait, right. this is actually a really good fit for this perspective. So the, the, the question that I always have with entrepreneurs early on is to talk about the goals of the company. And then if they're raising funds, how they expect the, the investors to get paid out. Mm-hmm. And there's no wrong answer to those questions because it's how you as the entrepreneur want to build the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs start thinking that they will pay investors out with profit. And that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But that's a different methodology, different return structure mm-hmm. than what is traditionally considered venture capital. So you can't come to a fund that's structured like a VC fund and expect that you're going to give them, you know, a, a payout over time with mm-hmm. with uh, profits and then they're off the cap table. Mm-hmm. A VC's job is to get the company sold for as high as possible or take it IPO. Mm-hmm. Or they, we have to return multiples on our fund side. Mm-hmm. So every company that we invest in, the, the general rule of thumb. Uh, and, and there's tons written about this. The general rule of thumb is that every investment that a VC makes has to return the fund. Mm-hmm. So if it's uh, for 
easy numbers. If it's a $10 million fund and the fund invests a million dollars, the VC is expecting that company to return $10 million. Not like a hundred mil or a bill, but like just that 10 mil. I mean, obviously the numbers being different, but the rate, the ratio being um, full fund size you, you found. Yeah. Um, usually the investments are smaller. So it'd probably be like 200,000, 250,000 needs to return 10 million. Um, but that's, so that's the general rule of thumb is yeah. that every investment, so if they're looking to put money into you, you have to understand what their fund size is to mm. understand where you would have to exit at as an entrepreneur mm. and then kind of back out. Well, if that's what, if they're a hundred million dollar fund mm-hmm. and I need to return a hundred million dollars okay. and they own 10% of my company, I need to be, you know, this size yeah, in order to get true. them that return. Yeah. And then you need to show in your plan how you're going to get there. So if you don't have a plan to do that, they're going to be less, it's going to be less appetite. I think that's a really important point for startup founders to realize in the investment seeking journey is that, you know, you might be able to trick an investor into investing in you that it's not a good fit, but probably not because you'll, you'll do this all day long. <laughs> you can see through that. But on the flip side, like, there are plenty of investors out there. So if you can shorten the field to the ones that you really, that are really qualified for you to be talking to and talk to somebody like you who has the fund size that they can rationally get to that valuation within the timetable that you need them to get into. Because I mean, great, you got to that point in, you know, 2065 doesn't really help your fund. You know? Right. You know, so are these numbers and, and are these date point like the, the time when the fund is supposed to be returned are these publicly available or is this something they should be asking you as they're doing due diligence with you and and, and talking to you um the publicly available there might be some information if you look uh, if you google it um crunchbase might have some pr announcements might have some uh sometimes it's listed on the website Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you might be able to see some, um, but it's just to understand like where the investors coming from. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, if, if you're talking to an individual angel investor, they have a lot more flexibility mm-hmm. on what they can invest in because it's their money. Mm-hmm. So they can, they can take what you're saying and say, okay, this is going into my VC pile, which is long-term asset class. This is going into my loan structure where I'm going to get paid regularly out of it or you know, this is, you know, they, they can decide which bucket it goes into because it's their own personal capital. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking to a fund, a fund has very narrow definition of what they can invest in okay. because they, they've got that somewhat mandated mm-hmm. to their investors. That's what they and their if we they raise their fund, it's right. It's what we promise, not only what we're going to invest in, but also from a return profile. So if I, you know, mix and match what I'm going to do and what I'm going to invest in, it's going to mess up my returns. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not going to hit the return metrics that I want to return. Mm-hmm. And most funds want to return over three times their fund. So if I start going into three hits on their investment, to, to go back to your original point of every single time you return the fund, you need at least three. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Which the industry, the, the, again, rule of thumb is if you invest in 10 companies, 
three are going to go sour. Three are going to return meh, you know, two X, three X. Three are going to become zombies. They're the walking dead. They're, they're, they're lifestyle businesses that the executives are making a good life on. But so you can't, the, the companies aren't going to be written off yeah. and they're, so you don't get the tax break. Yeah. Um, and they're, but they're not doing well enough to be acquired. Mm-hmm. So literally like for, from an investor's perspective, they're, they're walking dead. Um, and then one of them is going to be the big one. That's going to be the 30 X return. That's going to make up for everything. That's the industry average. You know, our model is a little bit different, but you know, we don't have to get to the nuances of that. Yeah. Um, so just understanding what kind of investor you're, you're, you're trying to go after and who you're talking to at that particular time is important to see if there's fit and you never want to sell an, an investor on something that's not true to you because it's going to come out eventually. And then you're going to have you, you and the investor are going to be in a fight yeah. because they're going to want to push one way. They're going to want you to exit in five to seven years and you're going to want to hold on or something like that. Like it, yeah. it, it really has to be um, investor and entrepreneur fit for the long run. That's something I learned in, I learned in sales. It took me a long time to figure that was not every single person is the right person for you. Like they're going to say no eventually anyway, or it's going to be an awful relationship. So figure out whether it's going to be a good relationship, whether they're going to say right. Yes. For the right reasons. And then talk to those people and figure out how to get rid of the people who are not a good fit as quickly as possible. So you can focus on the good fits because it's good all around. And that was Real hard lesson. Again, one of those, I made many mistakes before I learned that. Yeah, we all have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all have. It's, you know, for the entrepreneurs out there, it's really important. And I, and I can't stress this enough. Due diligence should be a two-way street. Mm-hmm. If you are talking to an investor, talk to them and understand what their process is, who they've invested in, how they invest, and do your diligence on them. One, one of the things that we do in um, and I apologize, there's a thunderstorm going on outside if you hear that, the rumbling. Um, one of the things that we do in our fund is that when we start diligence on a company, we're asking for a lot of confidential, proprietary information. We're having conversation with clients. So I immediately send the entrepreneur our contact list of all the entrepreneurs that we've invested in. Mm. <clears throat> sort of this open kimono approach to say, hey, I'm digging into you. You're mm-hmm. welcome to, to do the same to us. Yeah. And I don't know how many entrepreneurs actually do reach out, but just the fact that I'm extending that, I think means a lot to the entrepreneurs. To, so they know that we're in this for the long run. Yeah. You know, this is a long-term asset class. And you know, the, the joke is that it's harder in the U.S. It's harder to get out of an early stage investment than it is out of a marriage. Yeah. So we really have to make sure that everything we do is in line so that mm-hmm. when the entrepreneur calls up at seven o'clock on a Friday, Mm-hmm. with bad news because nine times out of 10, it's going to not be great news <laughs> that <laughs> we're still, ex- yeah. <clears throat> you know, they're not going to call us for, for great news on a Friday at, at seven o'clock. They'll email us or send it or tell us them the next day. But um, uh, when they do call, you want to look at the phone and be like, okay, this is, this is clearly important. Not, mm-hmm. Oh man, like, I got to deal with this right now. Yeah. You don't want that that to happen I, on either side. You want you don't want to feel like that when the investor calls and you see that name pop up on your screen. And as an investor, we don't want to do that with the entrepreneur. So that creating that relationship and that bond early on is immensely important, and making sure that there's fit. Mm-hmm. That was my rant. I apologize, Devin. That was your what? That was, that's my rant. That's your rant. No, 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 no,
Ashley's <laughs> edit the, edit this piece out right after he said his rant where I act surprised. Uh, but I thought that was like honestly, that's what I'm trying to get out of you. Because when you get on that role and you just start yeah. talking to a certain degree stream of consciousness, like all this elegance and just real, like real sure. wisdom comes out in a way that's really <laughs> and really like it's why you're one of my trusted advisors. Because I of love it, man. So no, but in all seriousness, I'm not, you know, not blowing smoke yeah. here. Like that, that, that rant is like so the more we'll talk about after <clears throat> So okay. I just need to edit out the entire thing. All right. And um uh and action. That's you know, that's really interesting. When you're looking at these at these at these startups and you're looking for that uh fit and they're doing the due diligence with you and the diligence, you know, we talked a little bit about the stage and the metrics and the team. How do they how do they get into um I don't know whether that was all right, let's edit that out. Sorry, <laughs> the crap out of me. too dramatic. <laughs> it was entirely dramatic. Where do you look for them? <laughs> they call me my castle. <laughs> I was so intently focused on you that suddenly it went boom. Okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. And, uh, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask about where do you find where do you find the teams? Uh, how can they get in front of you? Um, okay. Uh, so, you know, you talked a lot about, uh, about you going to different locations and being in different, different areas. Um, so these teams that are going to be doing, going to be thoughtful enough to do this qualification with you to, uh, dig into the due diligence of you while you're digging into the due diligence of them. Where do you find them? How do you, how do these people get in front of you? Uh, do they just send you an email? Are they going to DM you? Are they going to slide into your DMs on, on Twitter? Um, how do they get in front of you? So the best way is always a referral mm -hmm. because those emails get responded to more often. Mm -hmm. We do look at cold deal flow. We do look at the deal flow that comes in on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever else. But again, there's, there's always too many emails, so I can't guarantee that we're going to respond to every email, mm. but it does get seen, okay. you know? So if you, and I'll say most entrepreneurs are able to find one degree of connection away and we're pretty approachable or we try to be at least. Mm -hmm. If anybody finds us as not approachable, please DM me right away or send me a message right away. Like, Hey, you're not approachable and we'll, we'll fix that. Um, <laughs> But but there should be avenues that you can get to us through our network. If not, you can certainly um, just send something cold. But again, uh, cold gets seen. But it's it's it, there's just so much deal flow coming in constantly. It doesn't always get responded to. So let me ask this of a, a, in a slightly different way. Which is if I'm running an ecosystem, <clears> I asked this on an investor call, and I, and I was asking them because I serve underserved communities. So you know I might be doing a program in Aruba or in South Texas or in the Yucatan. And I was like, how do I get investor interest? And this guy's like, just get a unicorn. I'm like, well, yeah, great. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the most obvious answer ever spoken by an investor. <laughs> but like, how, do you, how does somebody who's starting up an ecosystem in Pittsburgh, how did Pittsburgh get your interest? How does Ohio get your interest? How do people, how does an ecosystem get in front of you or a program get in front of you? 
to get you to come for that serendipitous uh, event participation? So I can speak for me. I can't speak for all other investors. Yeah. But for me, it, it's just, you know, reaching out, telling me that there's there's an uh, ecosystem of entrepreneurs and you want to stay connected. You know, I'm, I'm happy to to set regular calls with with these influencers or these other investors or accelerators or do demo days or office hours. Like mm -hmm. that's the way we build the best uh, mm -hmm. deal flow and the best deal sources just by being active. Mm -hmm. um, but for more national and broader attention, it, it, it's to remind the entrepreneurs that had a foothold in that ecosystem or that came out of it, whether they went to high school or university or started their company there, just reminding them to come back and mentor and mm -hmm. talk to the, to the other entrepreneurs. And when they're out there um, in, in the startup world, they say, hey, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh or Ohio or wherever it is, and just keep that top of mind and that will naturally bring uh, um, uh, recognition to that ecosystem. Right. It, it was about seven or eight years ago that I saw um, this, this very prolific angel investor from Hawaii. Uh, she was speaking and somebody asked like, you're in Hawaii, what, how many Hawaiian entrepreneurs are there? And she said, they all leave to go to San Francisco. And somebody asked like, why, why? Why do they leave? Why don't you push them to stay? She's like, I, I encourage them to go because they can't stay. They need to go to the valley. They need to go to um, where, where they, they can have better success. They need to you know, grow, grow up in a sense. Mm. But when they go, I tell them, when you make it big or when you get there, remind them where you came from yeah. and then come back and talk to the high school students, talk to the university kids and tell them that you were able to do this because that's going to encourage more entrepreneurship, which mm. will make it more organic to come up and then more resources will be committed. Yeah. So it, it does come from the entrepreneurs, but they've got to make that commitment to, to talking yeah. about the fact of where they came from. Yeah, yeah. we just had an IPO here, uh, 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 Bumble. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's like all of a sudden, all the investors are like, ooh. And I'm like, dude, that's like, that was an excellent startup founder. She worked at an excellent startup. She left and formed another excellent startup. Obviously, it's the founder, yeah. you know, and uh, but they're like, well, let's find another her. And I'm like, they're all here. Great. I mean, I'll take any excuse for you to come down. But like, but like now they're all looking for dating apps. And I'm like, right. No, man. No, like it's a complete, there's other stuff to look at. And it's like it's just always an interesting uh, conversation to have with investors. The, yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question because you really, you, you really talked a lot and I think you made a really good case for how important your LPs and your team as a, as team members of your startups is. Can you tell me a little bit more about who are they and why they're an unfair advantage? You talked a little bit about the operators. Can you give a background as to like where the, where you really shine in operators or is it just all across the board, you know? So the, from our investor base? Yeah, well, I mean, if your team, like you would mention that your team, you, you will put LPs on the board and they'll be connected mm -hmm. with them to solve specific problems and all that. So if you, I mean, obviously you're not going to tell me who the LPs are. I mean, if you want to, I'll write them all down with their phone numbers. But, uh, but I mean, like in, in terms of their, <laughs> in terms of, of like, so if I'm looking to get, you know, I've, 
fit all your criteria and you're looking to invest me and I'm trying to decide what does that team look like that they can expect, um, you know, so for the startups out there, why is your team amazing that they should be talking to you? So we, we come from all different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a one industry fund. It's mm -hmm. not all tech entrepreneurs. Um, we have, again, people who have started and sold their businesses, people that have taken over businesses, people who have had private equity involved. We've had exits, roll-ups, like everything that, that was possible between our investor base we've seen. Um, including professionals who are at the peak of their careers that they've been, you know, they, they launched a business 20, 30 years ago. They've seen everything there is to see in their industry. Um, so the day-to-day -day of it is, is almost memorized. They, the, you know, the, the challenges of that don't surprise them anymore. So now they want to go back to their humble beginnings and work with startups again. Mm -hmm. So we, we have that bench from the experience side, mm -hmm. but it, there are a few of us on the GP team, um, and between my partner and I, who know venture really well. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a blend of bringing those two perspectives into the conversation, knowing the, the business strategy and operation and execution mm -hmm. with the, the venture returns, how to build a venture scalable company that mm -hmm. really makes us that much different because it's not all in one, one person's head or in two people. It's, it's bringing the combined efforts from a, two different groups of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I, and no, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about the combination of the venture expertise with the uh, industry or discipline expertise together. I really like that. That's- Thanks, that's I never had to think about it this way. <laughs> that's my job, sir. <laughs> um, I, I know, I give you credit. <laughs> but no, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, we um, can we talk a little bit about diversity in your LPs and in your uh, GP? Are you seeking out how diverse are you guys from a gender, from a ethnicity perspective, um, from a background perspective? And are you doing anything to consciously or you know um, actively diversify? the different LPs and, and, and the different members of your team, whether they're LP or GP? There's not enough diversity. There needs to be more. Mm. Um, I am actively trying to reach out to the women uh, in our fund to introduce us and to help promote us among their networks because that's the easiest way that we've seen. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's not, it hasn't been easy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, as an industry, we, we've seen that challenge and there are a lot of different theories on it, but I'm hopeful that our process and our framework, which is much more inclusive of different, um, <coughs> excuse me, which is much more inclusive of different perspectives and which encourages people to participate so that they can learn the process of being a, a venture capitalist or an angel investor. Mm -hmm. and not feel like they have to do the whole lone wolf strategy as an angel. Uh, I'm hopeful that this is, is better suited towards introducing people to um, startup investing as a whole, mm -hmm. and therefore we can bring more diverse people in who this, this would be the first foray for them. So I've, I've been trying to create the systems and processes so that it's more approachable and engaging, and mm -hmm. now we're going about it to try to bring in more LPs 
and GPs into the pipeline. Cool. Perfect. Thank you. So now, now we're going to get into the, the fun part of the conversation. I mean, I know the whole thing was just incredibly fun. It was fun. I enjoyed this. But uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about some resources for our listeners. Like what book or podcast or newsletter would you suggest founders should be reading or subscribing to that would just like, you know, it will really give them alpha on their, on their invested time. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is the acquired podcast. Mm -hmm. I actually, um, I haven't listened to it this past season, but I, I, at one point I went back and I started from season one and just like ran through all of them. It was, it was really awesome just to listen and hear the journey of all the companies that they thought about, especially in the early years before acquired got really big. Um, and, and just the thought process of the two, I forgot who the, the two guys who run it, mm -hmm. um, but just, you know, they're just genuine and like thought process, the way they talked about it. And they, they would have the same questions that you and I would have. Yeah. And they would talk about it in a very, like having a beer with one another way. Yeah. So it was good to get that insight and they did a lot of research. Cool. Um, so from, yeah, that's, from that's probably the number one. I'm yeah. definitely checking that out. That is not on my podcast list. And I'm definitely oh I'm my subscribing God, yeah. immediately. Yeah. Subscribing immediately. The uh, I'm gonna stop subscribing <clears throat> to all the true crime podcasts. Which I have to do. No, true crime. So when we're in the car together, I'm like, can we listen to the star? No. I'm like, how about true crime? Yeah. I'm like, okay, not gonna fight with their true crime it is. So but uh I'll I'll put the uh, I'll put a quiet on there. What about from an investor perspective? Like when you're like, if, if somebody's breaking into an invest investment or, you know, just one of these in uh, a blog or a podcast or a newsletter that you're like, mm, that just really helps. I really love this resource that you can suggest to new investors coming into uh, in, into the, the industry. Um, Samir Kaji is an amazing, brilliant thought leader in the industry. Um, he's had probably close to over a decade, maybe even two decades worth of working with and being a thought leader on micro VCN. He has a podcast called um, Venture Unlocked. And that is my latest podcast that I started from the beginning and I'm just making my way through um, just amazing content consistently. Um, and Colin West, I got to look this one up. He's got a, a good blog as well. Um, I apologize. Ensemble.vc. I think he's got a uh, a newsletter that goes out that's pretty solid. Cool. Well, I will. Uh, I am. I'm incredibly embarrassed to say that I don't have any of those on my reading list, or my podcast list. And I'm like, I was hoping to be able to be like, I, I love them. I listen to them all. I'm like, no, I'm really, really awkward. Uh, I, I will definitely be listening. That's cool. The, Digging into the digging into the crates there. Um, what do you? I'm looking for one more thing. I think it's oh. the Axiom newsletter. Is that what it's called? Axiom. Axios. A X I O S. That's a daily newsletter that um, <clears throat> Dan Premack used to have it, and then he stopped for a while, and now it's rebranded under A X I O S. Um, that's a great one that just recaps private equity and VC deals every day. Oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. 
All right. So a uh, little bit long, longer form. What book are you reading right now for fun? Are you for reading? fun? Um, my son and I just read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and now we're reading the second book. one. Yeah, an excellent book. I love that book. I, I absolutely. The, yeah, Roald Dahl the, is the, a unsung hero of young adult fiction. You should read them all of them. They're like James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. They're kind of dark. Like you're gonna have to have some conversations with them, but like they're like really, they're really, really yeah book. Really, really like kind of those eye-opening books you read as a youth that you're just like the world is a little bit bigger than I expected it to be. You know, they're really good. But and reading it as an adult, you're like, this is what I read as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, this what? was a wait a second. Why are there seven people in a bed? Like, you know. why? Like they're smoking. Like, what are they smoking? <laughs> um, and then, but the second one, the the Great Glass Elevator, that is a trippy book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Like yeah. all of a sudden, they're in this factory with the with the Oompa Loompas, and then they blast off into space. Yeah, you know, like, he gets trippier. Something. James and the Giant Peach is a trippy <laughs> book. You're like, what? The uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, what about for business? Are you reading anything? I mean, I'm assuming you're not reading them yourself. Maybe you're getting them started early, but are there any business books that you're like digging into now? Don't joke. I when when he was just born, I would his bedtime stories were like company updates that were emailed to me. Cause I'm like, I'm not gonna get a chance to read this otherwise. So you yeah. get to listen and yeah. you know, sometimes it put him to sleep, sometimes it did it. The, the, the real question uh, for our listeners is did you make your son sign an NDA? <laughs> Touche. That's a good one. That's a good one, David. Um, uh, uh, good. Um, but the business book that I've been reading is is actually written by one of our uh, LPs, um, Amy Raiden. She wrote a book called The Change Maker's Playbook. Ooh. And I should actually get you a copy of that, David. Yes, you should. I love gifts. Yeah. A. And, uh, but no, I, that really, I, I love the whole concept yeah. of change makers as just a, as an active thing you're trying to create or trying to be. I really love that concept. I, I heard it at, yeah. Ashoka, at an Ashoka conference. They have this whole thing where they teach universities to be change makers. And I was just like, ooh. And um, that's, yeah, I love that. I would definitely say, so what is her, what is her name? Amy? Uh, Amy R-A-D-I-N. Radin, R-I-D-I-N. Yeah, I can send you any of these links afterwards or the new Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll need. put them all in the. We'll put them all in the description. Okay. Um. Okay. So, who are three people that um that you know that I should interview or uh, for selfish games that I should interview that you'd introduce me to that I should interview them in the ecosystem investors or startups, but on the flip side that the listener the community should know that they really should, they should be following or they should be, they should be checking out that you'd like to give a plug to. Ah, so I originally thought this was like aspirational, you know, like Mike Maples is an investor who is phenomenal. I've only heard him, I've heard him speak live once and then on a bunch of other recorded uh, mediums. Um, he's, he's awesome. Like yeah. the way he speaks and what he talks about um, floodgate ventures. Floodgate ventures. Um, so. Um, he's, he's top notch. So is Samir and Kaji and Colin West. 
Um, but from an entrepreneur perspective, um, the, there are two that are just awesome people and have really good journeys. Uh, one is Sam Miller from Proteus Motion. Uh, he's been a hustler. I've been, we've been following him since he was early on in his concept and have invested a couple times throughout his journey. And he just came out with a monster round. Um, Proteus is a, uh, you'll geek out on this, Devin. It's a device. It's, it's an ex- Think of it as a piece of exercise equipment that uses magnets to give 3D uh, resistance. So if you think about like the case it's example is for, for working out, right? Yeah. It's, it's so it's, cool. That is it's yes, you're absolutely cool. right. I will geek out on that. I know. I have to interview this person. This is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, and I'm probably buying one, and my wife is going to be like, you still have no, you can, it, it's, it's only for high-end sports facilities, man. I wish we could all afford one. It's, <laughs> he's uh, working yeah, on the consumer be. model. Yeah. I had the same problem with Smallhold when I was at your investor meeting, and I met I Smallhold, and I'm like, I want one of these for my house. He's like, we don't sell them to houses. And now they do. <laughs> I bought one and I bought one for like three of my friends during the pandemic. So <laughs> good job. It was an amazing gift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I give you the gift of mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the edible kind, guys, not the psychedelic yes, kind. Yes, yes. The legal kind. The legal kind. <laughs> the, the, the ones you have for dinner. Um, <laughs> um, but Proteus, it's like if you think about if you're throwing a baseball, this is their case example. When you start back, Mm-hmm. You're put. You're pulling, and then you're pushing. Mm. But actually, unless you're using a physical, like a ball, mm. it's not. You can't get that same resistance yeah. all throughout because you the weights are either they're one directional. Yeah, yeah. So you have to. So they've developed this separately. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So wow. he's developed the device, um, leveraging technology that his father actually developed decades ago at MIT. That now has 3D 3D resistance. It's it's awesome. That is really cool because you could use that for yeah. any sport. Every sport has a compound exercise that that they need to do. My dad just had yeah. a scare, and like our big mission was to get him up to speed enough so he could go play tennis. Because as soon as he got on the tennis court, he'd be doing those compound exercises, and then his everything takes off from there. But I love yeah. I love that 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 true action because you're going to also learn the muscle memory of of mm-hmm. the activity as opposed to learning this learning this and then trying to put that together in your head with a pitch which like this exercise is in pitching this exercise yeah. is in pitching you know i'll um i'll send you their link and they're they're very cool. active on instagram too cool it's really cool um you mentioned two is there another one that you were um charge it spot down in philadelphia um and i joke with him that this is the most brilliant no duh idea when i heard it yeah it was just awesome and and i love doug because he's he's an amazing hustler a very creative marketer um and has been able to to work his way into some of the top brands in the u.s and the, the concept is simple yeah. There's a charging kiosk, phone charging kiosk, which we've all seen before. But what he, his innovation is he charges the retailers 
instead of the end user. So if it's sitting in um, Target is one of their clients, if it's sitting in Target, he's charging Target for that unit being there so that it's a free service for us as shoppers inside of Target. So we can charge our phones while we're there. Okay, and it's secure, and it's secure. I mean, it locks like, okay, cool. And through COVID, he, he's done amazing through COVID, even though most of his clients were closed. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, how did, how did he survive? There's so many great startups that. that were not set up for the remote. <clears throat> like, you know, and it's like, but he's done, he's done. It was, he's done well because of his tenacity, his creativity, his ability to think through problems. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, I had a conversation with him at one point and I'm like, Hey, you know, what, what happened? Like, did you lose any clients? He's like, we lost one. I'm like, oh, come on. You were so close. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, Jonathan, they went bankrupt. Like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I can't really control bankruptcy law. Like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I was like, all right, you get a pass. Uh, yeah. But just a phenomenal, phenomenal entrepreneur and what he's been able to accomplish when the when his clients were closed, he still was able to support them and work with them so that he, he was there. Again, empathy. Yeah. Uh, and talking to him and building that process. And now he's added the um, phone sanitization and a whole slew of other things to it. So now he's uh, further entrenched into the company. Cool. All right. So let's pivot and let's talk a little bit about ecosystems. Are there any ecosystem plays or any programs that you've come into contact with in Philly, Ohio, New York, uh, any of the areas that you're in that you're just like, nobody knows about these people, but you really should. If you're a startup, go to them. If you're an investor, go look at them for deal flow. If you're a mentor or facilitator, go help them out because they're doing great work. So my first plug is for the Coffin Fellows Program. Mm -hmm. And this is for, um, it's mainly for the, the venture capitalists and investors, mm -hmm. but they've expanded the program to be broader than that. So as entrepreneurs, if you see somebody that's in the Kaufman Network, as LPs, if you see someone in the Kaufman Network, they've been super vetted mm -hmm. um, to be part of a very small cohort of people who um, have a deep network, deep understanding of how venture works, um, and a dedication to be um, accretive in value mm -hmm. um, and want to be long-term advocates for startups and entrepreneurs and in the industry in general. So get off in branding, um, give, a, give them a, a, an extra few minutes of attention. Yeah, cool. That's, that's, that's the really first one that kind of know. spans all, all sides. Yeah. So I think that's something that a startup might not even recognize, not even recognize to look for. And I think that's great. On that due diligence, you see that Kaufman logo. Ooh, take a second look. You know, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a great program. And, and I give a lot of credit to however, whatever methodology they do to vet us out um, is solid because everybody I meet is just somebody I'm like, I want to work on a deal with this person. I want to you know, be colleagues with this person. Like there's inherent trust. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, the, the other two that I think are underrated, <clears throat> one is the Zon Center in Harlem, which you know well, Devin. Um, it, the first time I went there, uh, it, was, uh, it was very funny because I'm walking into a, the university and back then they hadn't really built it out. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I go, the security guard says, yeah, go down to the, down those steps over there into the basement. And so I'm like, okay. So like, there's like signs that just say Zon Center with an arrow this way. And as I'm going further and further deeper into the basement of this dilapidated building in Harlem, yeah. um, like it's, it's like the lights were flickering, a door opens and closes <laughs> on its did, own. Yeah. It's like, it's like, like leave, you know, a, a mouse scurries across the floor. Like it's, it's, this is a horror movie to start. And then all of a sudden, you know, I open this door and it's like, oh, like it's, yeah. it's like heaven right there. There's yeah. this amazing machinery. Like it was awesome, but nobody knows about stuff yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I preach, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm a little protective of because I'm like, this is one of the things that I know about that most people don't, uh, yeah. but I want to give them a plug because they're, they're, they're pretty awesome. Um, and then finally, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was say, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the real point of these is if you're, if you're not slightly uncomfortable about giving out this resource, then, you know, it shouldn't, you know, if everyone's like, oh, everyone knows about that. Like, let's plug Techstars, please, because nobody knows about Techstars. <laughs> I mean, it's like some of these programs, they get all the publicity, but some of these programs are really working their butt off with very little resources um, for, and they're really doing, you know, great work and helping people to understand that they're there and that they are doing great work um, and, you know, walk past that dimly lit hallway and go to the other side so you can see that greatness that there is 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 really worth it and they're in every city you know um mm-hmm. this is this is a great one that uh fair transparency i used to work for so uh that uh, that's actually how i know jonathan but um but it's, it's but really- if and if anybody knows those networks and knows those incubator programs that are down that long dingy hallway let me know because those are the areas that I'm trying to get in touch with that most people don't know about, that most people aren't catering to, because I can't guarantee that we're going to invest in it, in anything, but I want to meet those entrepreneurs and those hustlers that are coming out. Yeah. 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 Really good point. Really good point. Yeah. I've always told, I always said, I want that. I want that hallway there because I want investors to see what these kids have to put up with to get this resource, you know? And what they're, they're willing to walk through that hallway in order to get to the promised land. So if they're willing to walk through that hallway, what else are they willing to walk through? You know, how, how, much, how much harder are they willing to work? You know, it's not a beautiful, shiny object on, you know, that, that is just obvious because, you know, billions of dollars have been pump, pumped into it. This is, this is a life a lot of yeah. entrepreneurs uh, are actually leading is, it's in right. the back room of a small business center. It's in a community center. It's in a community college. It's in, you know, so. For so. what it's worth, you, you and the rest of the Zon team have done amazing. And the facilities have been upgraded. Like, it looks a lot better to all your listeners out there. <laughs> oh, yes, like, yes. It's we amazing should point right that now, out. But I'm talking about, it's like, no eight years yeah. ago when it started. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a whole bunch of people um, are like, I'm not going. You're not selling me on that. Like, no, no. It's, it's much it's, nicer now. Looks <laughs> it's come a long way and it's amazing what they've done over the past seven or eight years since it launched. Yeah. Um, and so you remind me of the other two. One is Founder Institute, mm-hmm. which for those people who want to test out an idea, um, who are just starting, they're still in concept stage. 
that's the first thing I send them to because it helps vet the idea internally for yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you're accepted into the program, it gets you to the next level of success. That whatever that milestone is, whether it's the pitch deck, it's mm-hmm. to go full time, it's to make it a hobby, whatever that is, it helps through that process and that journey. And they're global, um, right? They've got offices like all over the place. Yeah. They're huge. Yeah. I remember looking at their website and I was like, wow, okay, there's a lot more. And there's a lot of different, uh, and I, I know a bunch of different people who I, I think you might have introduced me to them, and that's how I know them. So I shouldn't name drop because you'd be like, Devin, I introduced you. But, it's uh, fine. You can. <laughs> but like, uh, I remember there's some guy who's a managing director there that, um, but like just really smart people, really good, smart yeah. people that are, um, that are doing excellent work because there's a lot of programs where you're just like, but you're teaching startups, huh? And he's just like, wow, okay. Uh, and like, this is not that. The Founder Institute is yeah. just some excellent, excellent uh, people teaching excellent stuff, so. Yeah. Um, and then uh, for, those, for the listeners that are based in the US, every state has some economic development arm that's looking towards innovation. Mm-hmm. So some states are better than others. Like Pennsylvania has got one of the best that I've seen. Um, they're really trying to to invest in companies in their state, uh, and their their thing is they want job growth, and you know job growth creates tax dollars, is beneficial in the long run. They also want the returns, mm-hmm. um, but that's that's their that's their key one of their key metrics is is job growth and companies that stay there. So, um, if you're located in the U.S., reach out to your local EDAs, see what support they can give you, um, because a lot of them do have do have um, resources, funding, and other programs that they can they can support you on. Cool. Well, you know, Jonathan, as always, this has been amazing. Um, thank you so much for giving myself oh, and all the listeners uh, so much time. Um, uh, thank you, and uh, we will be we'll be in contact soon. You got it. Thanks, Devin. I appreciate the time. It's been fun. Have a good one. Puntoba is a company that focuses on supporting and promoting entrepreneurs regardless of their industry, background, or entrepreneurial phase. We offer e-learning programs to teach skills and prepare future startup founders for the real world. We also host a networking platform where we connect people and entrepreneurs from different industries and communities. Finally, we facilitate an apprentice program where we train individuals and employees in different areas such as marketing. Our goal is to make the world 5% better by enabling entrepreneurs to create businesses for positive impact.